The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. My family thinks I'm crazy. A podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most. Because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady. Like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with you. Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, and it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. You know, just tell your whole podcast. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? of harmony, oppression, division, and confusion abound. Chaos and cataclysm loom in the foreground as consequence. But within nature, a level of symbiosis can be achieved that has the potential to provide the ultimate freedom and the harmony of the wild. There's a divine order when man steps into a coherent frequency as an abiding steward, and a reward unrivaled is bestowed. And joining me for the second time to discuss the hidden potential of energy, plasma, and how we can elevate our understanding of ground. Hilfer Gardner, the man behind BioCharisma, joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this conversation with Topher Gardner. Okay, there's so much to this. It's all of the above. First of all, we only see 3% of the light spectrum. So it could be a light beam that's being used that's non-visible to us because we don't see that much light to begin with. Dr. Wood's thesis, her theory on the whole thing was that they use an elf wave, which is an extremely low frequency, that created the, the destructive incoherence so the elf wave is just it's it's like the bass tone like whenever you're listening to the edm music so the elf is hitting and that's vibrating everything and then they hit it with a discordant high frequency note and then they hit it with the dematerialization note and so it's the combination it's a it's it's a triple access type of weapon so her summation was that This doesn't need to be a local thing. Like you don't need to have, say, a drone or a plane. You can displace this energy non-locally. 
And this is Tesla proof. This is like the, this goes all the way back to ether physics, where it's like frequency is location. So if they charge a certain location with a discordant frequency, they could power something else up somewhere else and then have it match like a tuning fork to the harmonic of that location and then displace that energy to that location. Ladies and gentlemen, we are back here on your favorite podcast, the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, and you know me, your host, Mystic Mark. Joining me again, a very special guest, somebody who elucidated a very interesting event that I, well, he witnessed and I sort of secondhand witnessed back again to discuss some new, natural, weird phenomenon He is the man behind the biochar. Topher Gardner is here again joining us on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. What's up, brother? Welcome back. It's great to to see you again, Mark. I've been really enjoying your pod, man. I always look forward to it. Thank you. I enjoy your stuff as well. I enjoy having you on the show. We've spoken once before, and I do recommend people listen to that maybe after or before they listen to this episode. But uh, for folks who haven't tuned into that or heard about you yet, tell us a little bit about what you do, your show, your channel. You're an active guy. You're always putting out interesting stuff. Tell us about it and where we can find it. Well, I'm I'm currently a builder and a massage therapist. I kind of fell into building When I moved to Costa Rica, because I ran out of money, I couldn't really pay anybody else. And I wanted to live in a dome and there were no dome builders in my area. And so I had fortuitous connections with some of my first building clients. They sent me to school and I learned super Adobe construction, which is flexible form rammed earth construction at Cal Earth Institute. People know that as earth bag construction. So whenever you see like the domes that look like a essentially a beehive, that's what the that's that construction. It's also known as Atlantic Arch Dome. And then from 2008 to about 2013, I built eight different earth earth bag structures in Costa Rica. And then (laughs) I kind of got worn out with that technology in the tropics. And I kind of upgraded my whole, my whole, I guess you would say operating system with construction and moved into ferro-cement. And ferro-cement gave me the capacity to sculpt things, sculpt structures. Because I think I got into earth and construction mainly because I really liked to sculpt i'd like to do all these different types of earth inlays and stuff like that 
in some very nice homes. And so I got into ferro cement because then I could sculpt and I didn't have to put a roof over whatever I was sculpting. And then I ended up figuring out a whole system of being able to do what's known as free cast ferro cement. And I was doing that for roofs. So these beautiful round structures that I build, I could now put a roof on it that looked like a flower. I didn't have to put a square roof on it. And these domes that I was building, I didn't have to put a square roof over them anymore. I could actually do, you know, a reciprocal style roof. I could do all these really cool shapes. And uh, yeah, then, you know, COVID kind of threw a, a wrench in my Central American plans. My wife and my little kid, we moved to Missouri. And we have a nice farm right in the Ozarks of Missouri. And uh, we've been loving it. Like the, you know, the last year, just getting used to the, this type of environment, the Midwest, getting used to all the different types of trees. And I think I was telling you before we started to record, I was cutting down trees today to make biochar for the Caria Times Festival. I'm going to be selling biochar at that festival. So yeah, that's the whole gardening side is just, I think that's just like a byproduct of my last name being gardener. <laughs> so yeah, I just do the biochar thing. It's been, it's been experimental for me mainly, but I find that I'm getting better and better at it. And the reason why I like biochar is because it, it really just makes the yield of the garden so much better. It makes the plants so much healthier. And then I had some shamans, you know, essentially tell me the importance of biochar. They don't call it biochar. They call it car carbon, but uh, they were telling me what the carbon does and how that activates the crystal grid. And uh, so, yeah, I'm into it. And in the Midwest, there's tons and tons of wood refuse that is essentially left to waste and so for me, I find it, it's a really good opportunity to start making a lot of biochar. And this is perfect timing coming off our recent interview with Jim Gale, who you might be aware of through yeah. Food Forest yeah. Abundance is his outfit. And he's really on a really awesome mission to do something very similar to what you're doing, which is to show people how easy it is to change up their environment in this positive net benefit, net good way. Biochar is one step in that equation. And, you know, I first encountered biochar probably when I was a kid because my father is also a gardener. It's funny. It's just truth and sort of interesting synchronicity with name. My last name is Steve's and I think that means stiff. So hopefully <laughs> I don't become a stiff <laughs> as I get older. I might need to practice some yoga to stay flexible, but uh, yeah, there's definitely truth in the name. But my dad, I remember he would always take the ashes out of the fireplace and keep them in a big bucket next to the fireplace that we had inside the house and throw them in the garden, throw them, you know, in the backyard. And next, you know, couple years, you'd see that area where the bio or the ashes, the carbon went in the ground, bloom, huge. I mean, just endless bounty of whatever he was growing, whether it was tomatoes or squash or... So there's some power in knowing, you know, the chemistry and how to utilize it, you know, all this that's available to us, what nature makes available. But 
it seems like in the Amazon, this happened on a scale that may be unrivaled, right? I mean, it, yes. it seems the Amazon itself is this sort of maybe genetically engineered is the wrong way to put it, but it seems to have qualities that almost insinuate that it's like man-made in some way. So maybe we can get into yeah. that if you want to start. Why don't we yeah. start with the like, yeah. what biochar yeah. is and how that kind of create could create something like the Amazon? Yeah, so biochar isn't the ash that's taken out of your fire. The ash, whenever you get like a gray or a white ash, that is mainly calcium. And that would be like all the salts of the wood, all the mineral salts would be bound to the calcium. So that has its own benefit in the garden. That's something that you can spread a little bit. Biochar is technically pyrolyzed carbon. And pyrolyzed means it's biomass that's been cooked where no oxygen is part of the heating process. So so uh, is it's more than charcoal, right? Charcoal right. is kind of what it looks like. And I misspoke there. I'm glad you corrected me. But so different than charcoal, different process, but it looks similar. So what's yes, the process? So Can anybody is, make this? There's a huge difference. So charcoal, there's it still has had oxygen during the burn. So a lot most charcoal is done in what's known as a pit burning. So they'll have a ton of wood and they'll pit burn it. And the stuff that's at the bottom of the pile is black. And they call that charcoal. And that's lump charcoal. You know, that's not like the derived, you know, briquettes that they make. That is the lump charcoal is much better than just normal, you know, chemical bound charcoal and that's carbon, but there's still been oxidative stress in it. So it's not so highly diamagnetically charged. When you have pyrolyzed carbon, pyrolyzed carbon means like I make a retort and in the retort, a retort is a vessel that when you heat the vessel up, no no gases can actually enter the vessel. All the gases are escaping in one direction. This is called positive pressurization. And when you heat a vessel like that, all the biomass inside, as it's letting go of its volatiles, it heats, it keeps rising in heat. And once it gets past about 850 degrees Fahrenheit, all the volatiles start to leave. And in an acceleration process, all you're left with is the crystal lattice of the carbon. So right now, when I pyrolyze my biomass, I'm only losing about 20 to 30% of the volume of what it is that I'm burning. So to give an example, if I had a, a stick that was, you know, say 20 inches long, at the end of my pyrolization process, the stick looks exactly the same, but now it's only 16 inches long, but it looks exactly the same. And I have tons of pictures on Instagram and go to at BioCharisma on Instagram where I'm constantly showing photos of like before and after. I just did a whole thing with bamboo and the bamboo that I used, it, the, these canes, I cut them in 26-inch long pieces because that's the length of my retort. 
by the time I got done cooking them, they were at 20, 24 inches, 22 inches. They only shrunk a little bit and they looked the exact same diameter. But this time, like if you've ever felt bamboo, it's very strong on the outside. The, I could just do this to the bamboo with my fingers and it would just crumble. And that was pure carbon. And it's very silica rich carbon, which is a, a wonderful thing to have. So the whole way of engineering this is in the Amazon, what they had found was that this material that they called terra preta. And there was these conquistadors that when they had entered in the Amazon basin, I think in the 1600, well, the 1500s, the 16th century, some of these conquistadors had had traveled through Asia and they said that what they saw in the Amazon basin was more profoundly cultivated than what they had seen in Asia, which is mind blowing because Asia, where they were in Asia at that time was one of the most cultivated, agriculturally intensive cultivated areas ever. So for them to go to the Amazon basin and say, this was even greater than that. And the Amazonian people were by legion. There were millions and millions of them. And there was essentially they what the what they figured out through excavating and through all these old tales from the conquistadors was that what they would do is that they did a chop and drop system. It's a very permaculture thing to do. They would dig these canals. And in the bottom of the canals, they would put these big clay vessels that acted like a retort. They would set fires in these clay urns, and then they would chop all the biomass on either side of these canals, and all the biomass would cover these clay, these like fire chimneys that were essentially underneath them. And then they would throw earth on top of the green biomass and all the biomass would cook down. And then they would plant on top of it like a year later. So all that biomass, they had like miles and miles of straight lines of pure, what they call terra preta, which is biochar, just lines of this stuff that were heavily planted. And this is how the Amazonians were so prolific in their civilization. And what had happened was after they had died for whatever wiped them out, the whole, there's a lot of speculative geologists that say that the entire world's ecology changed because as the rainforest encroached back into the Amazon basin where all this cultivation was, now these huge trees had good soil to grow out of it because in the tropics, you usually don't have good soil. And so these massive trees started to grow out of this incredible soil and it changed the whole oxygen cycle of our plane of existence. You know how they know that who knows that's just what they're claiming. But I living in the tropics, I've known like there, there is no good soil in the tropics. Like isn't that, it, the tropics isn't made for good soil. The trees that are indigenous to those areas are really there to pick up all their nutrients from this ocean air or from the air in general. That's why it's a canopy. Right. 
And so for them to have this massive amount of cultivation and these trees to come back really shows that whatever that they were doing on like a grand scale had an enormous effect on the Americas as a whole from just the overall oxygen production of the canopy when it reset itself into the biochar. That's incredible. Now, I believe the statistic is something like 40% or 50% of the world's oxygen is created in the rainforests around the world. And yeah, I wonder how much of the rainforest's presence is due in part to ancient cultures having advanced agriculture techniques. And, you know, we found all these, you know, structures underneath jungle that seems to grow at such a rapid pace it makes sense that you know this soil is just super boosted to allow such a rapid you know change now wow and even the pottery aspect of it i wonder maybe if that's partly why we find so much pottery in the ground is because people were implementing these techniques where they would bury you know your urns and you know set fires in them to create this soil and then once it grows over i mean there's no getting that pot back i'm sure the roots exactly. crush it and whatnot and it becomes part of the soil yeah they did a technique called a smolder burn so they made it so that those clay pots would actually you know break and fall in on themselves but these are large i mean these the what they were finding specifically with the terra preta and the amazon like they were surmising that you they were talking about five and six foot diameter type of the, i'm saying a pot because the vessel looked like a vase but it's essentially like a small little chimney stack or like a tandoori if you've ever seen an indian tandoor that's what it looked like but with a little bit more curve and, you know, you do all this chopping of biomass and it's all falling on top of that. And then you're putting all this other weight of earth on top of it. Of course, they're going to crack, but you've already started the smolder burn mm. and the smolder burn because there's so little oxygen would yield you all the biochar that you needed. Right. Right. And I mean, with the industrial revolution came a, a revolution in agriculture. So maybe we can speak to for a moment. I mean, when you look at these huge, massive factory farm situations where they're growing monocrop, it's my understanding, please correct me if I'm wrong, but they, these practices end up leaching the, the soil of its nutrients. And a lot of times they have to do a fair amount of like rotating of land where certain periods, all huge swaths of land are not even used because they're trying to, I don't know, build it back up again. Or maybe in some cases they just abandon it and move on to other space. But it seems like we've departed from that ancient wisdom that created something as magnificent as the Amazon rainforest. I mean, how different is the traditional or modern rather agricultural practices from biochar? Do you think like monocrop is actually worse for the soil and for the environment? Oh God. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think the United States was just an embarrassment of riches. You know, they had like the, where I live now used to be an, it used to be technically a savanna. It wasn't a forest. Everything from, I think it was like 
from the Mississippi West for a few hundred miles, you know, ranging all the way from North Minnesota down to the bayou, that whole area was a savanna where you had, you know, God knows how many years of bison running around roaming and pooping and pooping. And so you just had topsoil, crazy amounts of topsoil. So literally the settlers, when they started to pick up these areas and started to make farms, they could just throw seeds and things would just start to rifle because there was so much water holding capacity in the ground itself because there are so many phosphate groups and so much carbon. And those two things, like, I mean, that that's where life comes from. It all emerges from that. And then they just abused it. It's just essentially, you know, the, you know, the Dust Bowl. I don't know the exact things that occurred to make the Dust Bowl happen in 19, I think it was 1931. But it was just abusive agriculture. There wasn't crop rotation. There was just overplanting and all the rest of it. And this was the, you know, there's this whole thing with social engineering to take people and make them dependent on large corporations. And the largest corporation is the state, right? So we went away from having these small little home gardens. You know, and I grew up with my grandparents talked about, they remembered the depression. You know, my great grandfather lived through the depression. He was a man in his twenties during the depression. And so he, I was brought up always, Hey, if you have a quarter of an acre of land, you know, plant your victory gardens, <laughs> you know, they had that in world war two and all of it. And there was just like so many things that you could plant. And, you know, if it's that close to you, you can manage the rodents, you can manage all the pests. You don't need all this chemical to, to take, to, you know, essentially manage these monocrops like you, like you brought up the monocrop farm, you just don't see it. Nature just doesn't do that. Like you, like I've just bought a farm here and on 10 acres of it, it's been let, it's been feral for about 20 years. There's no monocropping. <laughs> Nature doesn't like, it's not just, there's just one tree there and the, whatever. I mean, it's just this diverse mess right. of stuff going on. And, you know, it, it would be best if we actually mimic that. And in a lot of gardening, like you're always stacking different plants that are mutually beneficial and symbiotic and are different because they all add to the information process that's going into the soil. And then the whole reason why I got into soil cultivation was because where I was in the tropics, there was no soil. So by soil, I mean the carbon. There was no carbon in the ground. And carbon is the bulworth for mycelium. So mycelium is like the fungal network that is in the ground that does all the nutrient transport, does a lot of the electrical conduction in the ground. That's from mycelium and mycelium needs carbon. <laughs> and so if you don't have carbon in your soil, then you don't get all these little benefits from the microorganisms and the, fun the fungi. Fungi. I don't know. I don't ever know how to say that. So, right. And it's as simple as taking these plants that maybe 
propose no other purpose than to serve as that material to burn and create that difference in the soil, right? I mean, this is really ingenious. Right. Whoever came up with that, whether they were shown it or you know, insight or even intuition that led them to do that, maybe they witnessed forest fires and light from you know from mm-hmm. lightning or what have you, and realized like, oh, hey, after couple weeks that spot that completely was burned out is com- overgrown now i mean look at all yes. this the crops over there so they must have figured this out somewhere in the ancient past well fire can be used to our benefit to to grow yeah. these you know better harvest get a better crop that's for the reason why there's all these problems with the different quote unquote wildfires, whether or not Mm. they're synthetically created, whether or not there's dews or whatever. One of the biggest problems that we have is in forest management, they don't allow controlled burning anymore. So I had like years before all the big fires out West started to have all my friends in California in Colorado, they were telling me, they're like, man, this whole place is going to go up like a matchstick just because there's these little beetles and the forest service stopped burning all the underbrush. And so even here, like where I am in Missouri, you would think that this area is just supposed to be like heavily wooded and it's not, it's naturally a savanna. And the reason why there's all this thick forest here was the settlers came in, they started planting trees for homes and everything like that. And then they forgot to start doing the under the the burning underneath the forest. So fires have always been a way if they're controlled to always allow the bigger trees to, to take off. It also increases the carbon of the understory of the forest, which allows, like I was saying earlier, it allows the mycelium to come in and do their thing. Right. And there's obviously a more precise way to do this, as you described in the beginning, where you get the fire going from underneath so that the plants are burned mostly with smoke, right? There's a difference, something that happens. So, you know, when it comes to biochar and how you can implement this now, I mean, obviously folks who live near you can reach out to you directly and get some biochar themselves. But if they were, let's say, out in an off-the-grid situation, they can make this stuff fairly easily and change their environment within a couple of years to have a food forest like our friend Jim Gale you know, talks so much about. I'm sure that's probably one of the steps in, the, in his process, but you have to evaluate the soil and mitigate it if need be, right? I mean, this is something that is probably case by case, but let's get into that. Like you were in the jungle, a place where the, as you put it last time we talked, the soil is paramagnetic. It's as opposed to diamagnetic and it's pretty much nutrient sparse. Like it's really not a great place to grow the crops you need to maybe, you know, sustain a a community or a homestead. Right. But with the right adjustments, those changes can be made and look at what the Amazon's become. I mean, it's like a, a virtual man, it manifests all these different species. I'm struggling to find a word to really capture that, but it, you know, the diversity of plants and animals in the Amazon, I mean, clearly that's something that 
the world benefits from in many different ways. And I mean, what's, how could we scale that down? I mean, what have you seen on your property with your experiments with this? I mean, have you seen a relative abundance since altering the soil in your area? Well, this year, you know, I've only been on this farm for nine months. So this growing season, I barely planted anything at all. I planted straw. I essentially planted berries for next year. I planted raspberry, blackberry, and strawberry. And I went ahead and spent the majority of my time pruning back all the overgrowth. The old couple that lived here, they were in their late 80s. So there was next to no management of the established fruit trees. So what I've been doing is I've been pruning back all the trees to allow the established fruit trees to actually have light. And I've been feeding and composting the established fruit trees. And all the while, I'm actually building my soil for next planting season when I have a greenhouse and I have my swales in. So I'm looking at this as the long-term thing. Like we planted some tomato and some potato, like really easy things. Well, uh, let me, let me take a step back because I realized my other question I had. I, I kind of whiffed that one because I, I do want to learn more about that. I understand that process, but let's get back to the burning and the forest fires and this whole topic. Because oh, okay. It is topical, I mean, with the whole Maui thing, but... Not that I'm suggesting that this is all DEWs, but when it comes to forest management, essentially what's happening is you're reaching like a critical point where these forests go unmanaged. The brush builds up to a point where when a fire does happen, it burns hotter than it naturally should. If these fires were seasonal, as they should be, and humans used to manage the forest in that way in certain areas, then the Mm -hmm. fires would be low enough to where the tree trunks actually have built up a resistance so that they don't get burned. And the, what's established that the, you know, I don't know the right term, but the, you know, the trees and whatnot, they're not going to be affected as much. And it even helps them because it, it revitalizes the soil bringing that layer of nutrients into the soil and it probably also clears some of that under crap that grows and pulls resources away from the tree as it gets older and grows higher and higher this is so true so the you can think of every tree that you see going up it's doing the same thing going down Mm. and so imagine like the missouri conservation forest conservation They say if you have a mature tree, which is a tree that has, you know, a 12 inch diameter trunk, that it should have about 30 feet before another mature tree for you to have a healthy forest. Well, just I have seven acres of unbridled forest, and I'm telling you, I've taken out 200 trees, and maybe of those 200 trees, 100 of them were dead. The amount of just dead material that's last year was a drought. This year it hasn't been a drought. But last year in drought conditions with all of that dead stuff just laying around in between all those trees, if a fire would have swept through there, you would have explosions. You would have had all these things occur where the fire was unmanageable. 
So everything near my house and around my house where the forest is, I cleared out. Like I, I did exactly what they said. I went in and took all the saplings that were six to eight inches in diameter, all the dead stuff. I cut it and pulled it out. And now, you know, I just had a gentleman that it works for the Missouri Grasslands Conservation and they came in and they are pointing out all these wildflowers that are growing in the area that I cleared out because now that there's actually sunlight that's making its way down to the forest bottom. Right. And so they were like, this is wonderful. Now that it's cleared. And by the way, I didn't grow up like this. I grew up like, if you cut a tree down, you're a murderer. <laughs> I never knew <laughs> yeah. that, you know, th- there was such a thing as forest management. Right. But, you know, after reading like the likes of Victor Schauberger and other natural philosophers, it was just like, whoa, this is like a big deal. Like you have to give space to the grandfathers and the grandmothers that are in the forest and you have to allow sun to touch the forest floor. Because at least here in this part of the United States, the canopy of the forest is not supposed to be like the canopy in the tropics. Right. <laughs> Like the canopy in the tropics, like no sun is supposed to hit the hit the ground. Right. But that's because the sun down there near the equator is so much stronger. Here, the sun is one third, has one third the UV. And so because the sun is weaker, you can tell that because the leaves on the trees are much smaller and the actual, the ball or the way the leaf patterns are on the trees, you can tell light is supposed to get through. But if you have all these saplings covering everything, and then you're not getting that light getting all the way down to the forest floor, then your mushrooms really, you know, your fungi, that suffers. So it's been a huge learning curve for me, but I can see just the intelligent design in all of it. It's like you get rid of those the smaller wood, you can use it for construction, you can use it for firewood, you can make it into biochar, you can even use it to seed more mushrooms. Like a bunch of the stumps and stuff like that I cut, I seeded with mushroom spores. You can do so much and the forest just comes back thicker and thicker. There's a, at least in the tropics, there's an axiom, you can never prune too much I'm kind of finding that to be true in the Ozarks too. Like I prune, prune it. Everything is just like thrusting back with life. I love the timing of this conversation because as I said, I was landscaping earlier today and you were cutting trees, synchronicity there. But the people that I'm helping out right now, their property is actually designated as a state park. And it's a a beautiful forest. It's next to a marsh. There's a sort of cliff. And there's six deer in the forest when I pulled my car in. So it's a really beautiful Beautiful. place to work. I'm really grateful to help them out. But I'm getting really excited. Oh, I could start chopping this stuff and maybe make this forest like a better forest. And I wonder, you know... We've been given this idea of survivalism is this rough thing. you got to rough it out. And I think we really forget how the intelligent, like, steward of nature thrives in this symbiotic way. When man enters an environment with this approach, nature rewards us by cultivating its finer aspects. I mean, this is so groundbreaking. And also, to bring maybe a more human 
crisis into focus, this homeless crisis. Think about how many jobs people could have if the forests and park services employed people to go in and do this sort of work. I mean, this is a lot. You, We have so much land in this country and so many people who need a place to sleep and a job. You could have people living in the forest. It's a beautiful lifestyle to live out that way. You could have them living in camps, doing this sort of work and making a decent, you know, living for themselves. I'm sure there'd be some downsides, but, you know, when it comes to the way our forests are being managed, yeah, I mean, I feel a sense of urgency myself to take, you know, to take this sort of cause I've always been someone who's just enamored with nature. I've always traveled out of my way to go hiking in certain places. And I'm just blessed to have lived in an area where there is forest. Like my father's property has some forest and, you know, I can see where, yeah, we might need to take some of these concepts and revitalize what's going on in my forest. I'm really taking cause here, but how do we manage this practice, right? Because I I don't imagine people can just go out with a Zippo and start a fire. And like, this is something you have to (laughs) really know what you're doing. So nowadays, I think what is the common way to go about it is to gather the material and burn it in one controlled place? Or do people actually do these sort of controlled burns where they let a forest fire kind of grow and control it and mitigate it as it expands? I've heard of that in Arkansas, and I've heard of that in certain areas of the Ozarks. I don't do that. I take my dry material and I bring it to an area that is outside of the canopy of the forest. And I do controlled burns in vessels that I've created out of barrels. Right. So I essentially have what everybody's seen is like a 55-gallon, you know, metal barrel I've modified it and built a device that goes inside of it. That's the retort and that all burns. And because it creates a very specific type of smoke, I put that in a barn and then I cure all the wood that I've cut on my property from that smoke. So it's a natural way to cure wood that I'll use in construction by using all the very oil rich smoke. Wow. Well, I imagine you got a beautiful aroma on your property when that's going on. That's awesome. Well, dude, you'll love this. I've been trying to figure this out because, you know, where I was in the tropics, it was way too wet. So, you know, I was always making biochar and it was always raining and I really couldn't see all that much around me because I lived in the cloud forest. Here, I've noticed every time I make biochar, it's like after I'm done making biochar, it's like I've smudged the property. It's like the smoke does this smudging and I can see everything so much clearer. It's whatever noise was in the space around, around the reactor is gone. Yeah. And I talked to a couple of alchemist friends of mine and I was like, Am I getting like more connected to the trees in the forest because I'm doing a the negretto phase, the alchemical, you know, blackening phase, and that's connecting me somehow more to the forest, or is all this smoke doing like a spiritual smudge? Yeah, it's the smudge. 
That's like, I, I think that's what's happening because it's without fail every time after I cook, because the process only takes an hour to convert the biomass into biochar. Like the whole, you would think that the farm would be full of smoke, but it's not like everything is clear. Mm. Like it's clear, clear. Wow. Yeah. I wonder if it's sort of like a, you know, the same way you can kind of put charcoal in your water and it kind of that it negatively ionizes particles and pulls it into itself maybe the smoke is doing that you know it's negatively attracting these other particles and pulling them out i mean not to bring chemtrails or any of that into it but i'm sure that has an effect on whatever they're dropping in the sky now to go back to my previous question one thing that's really fascinated me over the past few years is the stone walls that I see all across New England. And a lot of them are in places where you wouldn't commonly think maybe a farm was there. Sure, a lot of the forests are new growth. So at one point in time, there was a farm where there's now maybe a state park or a forest. But some of these stone walls go in places that I'm like, "Eh, I don't know, this seems like much older than we're being told. And I wonder if the stone walls play a role in this fire burning process where maybe the walls were like a barrier so to keep these fires under control they had like sections that they would burn in, at a time and they would know okay well it, when this fire reaches the stones it'll maybe stop i don't know maybe they cleared those spaces is this something you've seen and put into practice before? Is this striking a chord with you? Well, it makes sense to me because on the reverse side of that, it never made sense to me when they would say cities like Chicago or these cities that were masonry cities would go down in a fire. Like that made no sense to me. So what you're saying makes sense. You'd put like a stone mole you know, you one, you pull up all these stones. People that don't farm don't understand that stones in your soil can be a nuisance. So they would be picking up all this granite and whatever out of the soil anyway so that they could plant their crops. And they would want to put them somewhere. And, then, you know, the United States is all about land rights, right? So you'd be like, okay, this is my perimeter of my property and whatever. But that would make a lot of sense. I also think I've noticed that there are some stone walls that they would, depending on what material they were gathering, they were trying to enhance like ley lines or dragon paths. What I've learned is that the Native Americans actually used the stone walls to control the climate of their fields because it would keep certain pests in their place, like they would gravitate towards those stone walls. And then it would also allow air to flow in a certain way through the field so that this that makes sense. And they would actually have blocks in the wall where there would be spaces cut out so that, you know, air, wind could flow through in certain spots. And then there was another aspect to this where certain stone structures or stone monuments were used. And I'd love to find out maybe you could do this and experiment with this on your property. But what we have around New England and the East Coast are these strong, or sorry, very large stone structures where you have one giant, very heavy boulder, and it's kind of propped on top of some smaller boulders, usually of the same type of Mm -hmm. stone, right? Much smaller in comparison. 
And these are usually called like platform boulders or like standing stone boulders, perch boulders. There's a bunch of different terms for it. I never quite get it accurate. But what I learned from this book is that farmers utilize these structures and the piezoelectric effect of the stones and the weight pushing down on the much smaller stones to actually boost the potential of their seeds. They would leave a bunch of seeds in these stone structures at the bottom where that magnetic electromagnetic energy would be flowing and that crop would be better for it after you know being exposed to whatever energy is being exchanged in that situation but yeah i wonder maybe there's a way you can re recreate that or even you know put a big boulder on top of some smaller boulders and throw some seeds under it and see you know if those you know, are more abundant than, you know, your neutral or your, what do you call it in an experiment? Your, your, your control. Yeah. Your control. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I love the whole piezoelectric thing because my studies of the cathedrals and the people I know that have studied the resonant cymatics of the cathedrals, they're pretty convinced that the, basement dwellings the vaulted basement dwellings of these the pillars were all piezoelectric pillars so whenever the organs would play up top the vibrate the vibration of all the mass on these piezoelectric pillars you'd have the real learned you'd have the people that were down by the spring or down by the water source under the cathedral with the vibration, like you're saying, with these rocks pressing down this weight, and there would be a release of energy, and that would be bring them to, you know, their God moment. And that was for the, the elect, right. uh, while all the, you know, let's just say the public realm was up top, right? you know, in the public venue, the private was downstairs in the basement with the piezoelectric release my have you ever heard of the inventor john bedini no tell us about him so john bedini was a contemporary of i forget marantz's first name but you've heard of marantz amps marantz audio equipment no so like in the 60s 70s and maybe the early 80s there were there was the audiophiles would buy what's known as a Marantz brand amplifier. Okay. It was M-A-R-A-N-T-Z. And Marantz was middle to high-end amplifiers. Well, their competition on the high-end was John Bedini. But what made Bedini's amps so incredible was he used crystals in his amplifiers he knew the piezoelectric properties of different crystals and he used different crystals as tuners within his amplifiers. And so he ended up becoming one of these very, very sought after electrical engineers and developed all these systems of being able to collect energy from man-made crystals. So I studied John Bedini for 11 years, and I studied under Dr. Davidovitz, who is the gentleman that kind of popularized the whole term geopolymer. And 
Joseph Davidovitz in his Geopolymer Institute, he was the gentleman that figured out the composition, the exact composition of the pyramids in Giza. And he was able to recreate it. And in going to the Geopolymer Institute, he talks openly about how you can engineer any type of rock that you want. Like it's in, like we can make any type of rock that we want. Right, right. Geopolymers, <laughs> right? Yes, exactly. And it, he's the president and the, and I don't know, the founder of the Geopolymer Institute. Well, listen to this, because you and I spoke about this, I believe, in our first conversation. We talked about geopolymers. I think I... I had an interesting conversation about pyramids prior to that. So you mentioned, hey, I know some stuff about the pyramids and the geopolymers. Mm -hmm. But listen to this. So I wonder, because since then, I've heard a couple of things semi-related to the topic of geopolymers. And I wonder with your knowledge set, if you could shed some light on this. So two things. I was recently speaking with Greg Carlwood, the Higher Side Chats. He was a guest on the show. And he mentioned we did like a, we swapped stories, so to speak. He picked five mm -hmm. stories. I picked five stories. And one of his Fortean stories that he chose to tell me was of some miners who were in a cave somewhere in Europe and they found some limestone and they began to chip away at it and try to break it down into some manageable pieces they smashed it open, and what was inside was a living pterodactyl that seemed to be held in some stasis, like it had been like frozen in time, and it like leaped out, you know, gasped for air, and then died very shortly after that. And you know, who knows how true this is? I'm I'm not sure. Greg shared the story, but I'm not sure right now what the source was. But it's fascinating to think that this kind of thing can happen. I mean, we have found like fossilized uh, creatures in things like amber. But I wonder mm -hmm. with a geopolymer, could something like that happen you know, maybe to a reptilian uh, or reptilian, a reptile or an amphibian? It's funny how I combine those two words. No irony there. But yeah, I wonder if a creature like that with the ability to kind of freeze itself and then still survive, right? There's some creatures that, you know, they can endure cold temperatures and be thawed out. Mm -hmm. I wonder if the same thing could happen with stone. I mean, what do you think with geopolymers? Could you preserve like organic materials inside of them? I mean, I'm sure there's... Well, think about it. Just with this example, let's say that this example that you gave is true. And we are talking about the piezoelectric effect, right? Which for those of you that don't know, piezoelectric is when you convert a mechanical stress into an electrical waveform. So another, instead of saying electrical waveform, essentially you can convert it to electricity. So if they found they're digging and they're in this limestone block, let's just call it a geopolymer block just for shits and giggles, all that weight above is exerting a stress on that part that they were digging out. And then let's say it was a geopolymer that was piezoelectric, but it was an oxygenless environment. You could keep anything for any period of time alive 
as long as that there is an electrical current and no oxygen. Wow. Because oxygen is what breaks us down. Right. Oxygen, a lot of people don't understand that. Like oxygen, yeah, we need it to live and everything like that. But it's also like the reason why biochar isn't charcoal is because oxygen is never in the process. It's, it never touches the biomass as I'm cooking it. The second oxygen touches the biomass as it's heating, it changes the polarity of the carbon. Oxygen, like the number one thing that the, I guess you could say what kills everything that's living is oxidative stress. Right. Oxidative stress comes from oxygen. Right. So there's, you know, prior to my, you know, earthy life, I was a, I was a crazy meditator and I would get into these states of meditating where I wouldn't be breathing and I wouldn't be breathing for a very long time because my mind had gotten to such a stillness point that even breathing would have caused me to come out of the mind stillness that I was in. So I'm sure that there's plenty of animals out there that don't have the mental noise. If they were sufficiently put into something fast enough and that there was a piezoelectric stress that was going on in whatever they were encapsulated in and there was zero oxidative stress, I'm sure you could find lots of neat creatures. Wow. And then the shock of being coming out of that and then being in the oxygen for a very short time, they would come to consciousness and then there would be the death process because they're exposed to oxygen. Right, right. Wow. And it's not their time. Well, and think about it. I mean, I said reptiles and amphibians earlier, but all the creatures that hibernate, you know, north of the 40th parallel, I mean, there's so many mammals that I mean, essentially freeze I mean, beavers, some beavers, they freeze in the ice and then when they thaw out, they're still alive. They swim away. I mean, that's incredible to think that, you know, that sort of thing can happen. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, as a martial artist, I think I've reached points like that because you do, you train yourself to breathe, you exhale with every, you know, strike mm -hmm. or exertion of effort. You know, the point is to try to compensate for that by inhaling immediately after you exhale and exert whatever, you know, strike or whatever you're doing. And I found myself like in wrestling or grappling situations, having moments of, and one thing I should add is I'm farsighted or nearsighted. I can't see very well without my glasses. I wear contacts now, but then I wore glasses. So I would be in this sort of meditative zone when I was wrestling, grappling, sparring, what have you, because I couldn't see anything. There wasn't really a lot of stimulus other than what's exactly in front of me. And I mm -hmm. found myself like having these like <gasps> moments. Oh, I wasn't breathing for two or three minutes because you get so into it, whatever move you're doing or situation you're in, you got to get out of that. Yeah, you, your breath work becomes a part of it. And yeah, I wonder how much of that, you know, like monks do there there's this weird story where these people found a monk like meditating in a cave and it looked like he was dead and when they you know i don't know what they did they pulled him out or something and i think they realized he was still living like they brought him to 
a hospital and did some sort of thing on him and realized his heart was still beating, although he was completely like, I don't know, morphed into this lotus position. He couldn't move. He was completely yeah. like emaciated. You might have seen this, but I wonder if that's possible where you can, as a human being with the right mind, effort, and will, put yourself in that situation, you know, uh, where you like freeze through time. I mean, who knows how long that monk was there? He could be from the 1500s. I have zero doubts. I have zero doubts. You know, energy and mind are before matter. Right. Now, I've gone to certain points in consciousness where there's so much stillness that the material realm doesn't necessarily exist. So, (laughs) you know, matter is the condensate of the mind, of the energy, the mind energy of God. So, there, I'm sure there's been monks, you know, one of the gurus that I studied under in my, when I was in my 20s, there was a story where he they essentially thought he was dead. And when he was 16 years old, they found him like just being eaten by bugs and everything like this underneath this temple. And this man just pulled his body out thinking he was dead and he was actually still alive. And then they brought him and nursed him back to help. And he didn't even, he had no idea that had even happened. Wow. His attention, there was no attention. His attention was prior to body. Yeah. And then again, in his, I think, 15 or 16 years later, he went into this cave called Virapaksha Cave and didn't come out for three years. Like people down at the bottom of the mountain were like, Hey, where is, you know, I just know him as Ramana Maharshi, but they're like, where is he? Where is he? <laughs> and they ended up like coaxing him out and pulling him out of this cave. And he would just been, he didn't know if he had been eating or he was not, he was so immersed in the stillness that whatever was happening to the physical aspect of himself was immaterial to him. Right. It did not, it, it wasn't for him. And he wasn't even saying that was the way it should be for everyone. What he said was, he goes, this is my path. I'm here to resonate with stillness. That's my path. There's other people that will resonate with movement. There's other people that are here to do X, Y, and Z. But the core to all of this (laughs) is the silence. Right. It's pure stillness. And I think when you go into that state, you could, from the time domain perspective, it appears that, you know, activity and all this stuff is going on. But to you, it wouldn't, there wouldn't, it wouldn't even register because you're outside of time. I wonder if that's what goes on with mummification. I mean, obviously, I think with some mummies, they found like their organs removed and whatnot. So obviously, person's not living at that point. But I wonder maybe that's that wasn't the process initially. Maybe the point was to like literally wrap yourself up and meditate into death and like have that contiguous experience of like your astral body going out into wherever i mean i wonder if that person that went into the cave had any sort of out of body experiences during that process or dreaming i mean obviously they didn't remember any of it or they didn't have any experience of it 
maybe it didn't happen, I, but maybe I'm, it did. I'm pretty convinced that the era of all these megalithic structures and all these structures where they were taking stone, just like you were talking about these Native Americans knew how to use stone to keep the pests in one area and to keep the crops going good. They had they had a certain knowledge of stone and geopolymer where they were getting ready for the next phase of their continuity. Like we think of life and death because we're conditioned that way. And because we think the end of the physical body is the end. And that's the death of the physical body. I'm, I've read so many texts from the ancients where they didn't see it like that at all. It was there was a continuity that what we would call a soul. And when the physical apparatus, the body was about to transition and that material was given back to the earth, they were prepping for the next life. They were prepping for the next right. zone right. that they were going into. And a lot of these buildings, let's just use some pyramids. Let's use Gobekli Tepe, for example, the biggest pyramid that we know of. They know now, like they, they've had the biggest skeptics in the world go in there and say, there's nothing special about this place. And they go in there and the person that had cancer for three years now ha- no longer has cancer. So the geometry, the weight, the mass, the materials, all these things, the location, the geo, the geomagnetics of the location, the timing of when people were entering, they were they had such an incredible science to transport souls to get you ready to go into the transition into the next phase of your continuity. That's that when we talk in these archaic forms of using life and death, we're just like, we're stone age people. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad we cleared that up a bit. I've, I, it's beyond me as a living being, but yeah, it's clear that there was a time when there was a more sophisticated relationship with that transition, right? And yeah, I think it's more like what we see a butterfly, you know, from a caterpillar, that sort of relationship, whereas, you know, it was a caterpillar, although it doesn't appear to be <laughs> in any shape or form, it's completely gone through this different transition you know what if this is just our caterpillar body here on earth you know just sort of grubbing it around and then we fly away off into the astral world and wherever else that takes us but for a moment i want to go back to the geopolymer topic and ask you i'm glad you shed some light on the pterodactyl and the limestone but another area that may relate to this is Something I learned from a gentleman named Roger Spur, and he's actually located not too far from me. I believe he's a professor and maybe even a doctor, but I don't know for sure if he's Dr. Spur or Professor Spur. But either way, he's done this experiment where he took a chicken thigh and put it in a aquarium tub with mud as the medium and he ran an electric current through that mud with the chicken thigh or whatever meat organic material inside. And after a certain amount of time, 
this, what was a chicken bone or thigh became a stone. And I'm wondering, you know, does that check with everything you've learned about stones and can organic material, can a person literally become stone under the right circumstances? Because there are Native American legends of huge giants who were attacked by thunderbirds, electricity, lightning, and then they became mountains. And curiously, one of those mountains looks like a man on his back. I mean, people around this area call it Sleeping Giant Mountain. That's exactly, I mean, there's no other way to put it. It looks like the profile, the silhouette of a person lying on their back. So, yeah, I wonder what your thoughts are on all that. I've had probably four guests on, the main one being Mike Wilkerson, where we talked about instant petrification through plasma. So, you know, there are more than one way to skin a cat. There's one more than one way to petrify. And the easiest way to petrify is like this legend that you tell of in your area is where you have extremely high voltage and high amperage plasma. And that plasma hits in the right environmental condition. And it will literally be like you looked at Medusa, your turn to stone. Like there, there's a reason why that mythos is around and Medusa has these, you know, the Gorgon like, you know, snake tethered hairs. Those that's all this plasmatic energy that wow. they're saying, if you look her in the eye, you're turned to stone. That that's an that is an actuality. Yeah. And I think we had a technology where we knew how to petrify biological materials into geological materials wow there's too many there's too many stone fascias that when you cut the stone fascia in architecture so let's say you build a doorway and the top beam is called a lintel there are all throughout the middle east and lower parts of europe and central europe these lintels used to go, oh, this is this is a stone. This is built out of stone. They just, they quarried the stone this way. No way. When they break and they do a side cut, you look inside the stone and the stone has the circles of what a log would be. Oh, wow. It's nuts. So what I think they did was, you know, Martin Liebke keeps bringing up this. He has a theory about the fasces, the Roman fasces. And there's a reason why there's fasces on every single one of the G8 countries flags. And I, I tend to, you know, give credence to his hypothesis is that there was a plasma technology that we used to have that you would take a model I forget what the name of the statue is. The most beautiful, you know, picture, the, no one could be able to sculpt this with stone. Like nobody could, maybe they could cut it, but to polish it is, is perfectly as it's polished. This woman and her, like just the, what she was wearing and everything about it is just one of the most stunning statues I've ever seen you wouldn't be able to cast it either because when you would take off the castings, how did you get the inside of the casting so smooth? 
you know, I've, I do tons of concrete casting. I know exactly the whole process of it. And so at any point that you want concrete to be smooth or you want stone to be smooth, you have to polish it. Well, some of these statues of these beautiful beings, there's no, there's zero evidence of any polishing. And you're telling me with the technology that we have now where we can go in there and look very close with microscopes and stuff, we couldn't even see any, you know, sanding marks anywhere. The density, the porosity of these things. So what I'm trying to say is they would take wooden lintels, they would hit them with plasma. It was now a stone lintel. They would take certain people. I forget that. I don't know my mythology all that well, but there used to be people that would give themselves to the muses. They would, they would literally give themselves to the arts to be used in any way that's seen fit. I bet you some of these people that would do the poses... I bet you at some point there was a technology to actually petrify them. Wow. Now it's the instant petrification thing is something that I think the reason why cataclysm was kind of stricken out of our history books, you know, we're taught that, you know, history has been this smooth running thing and nature is very consistent and all this stuff, and they took the cataclysms that are obvious, they took them out of the historical narrative. And I think part of the reason why is because within the cataclysm story is the petrification story, the instant petrification story. And then they give us this BS, oh, the petrified forest in Arizona. Literally, I took tours of that forest, and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, petrification happens from pressure and weight and sediment. And I'm like, all these trees are topside. What are you talking about? Where pressure of what? Why are all these trees that are petrified? Why are some of them actually cut? And you have to like, they're cut and they're topside. This happened above ground. So the whole story that's given about how petrification occurs isn't the whole story. <laughs> right. And now in the lab, they can recreate this. They can literally hit living, well, I should say biological things that are full of carbon. They can hit them and convert them almost instantaneously into an igneous rock or into a crystalline geological formation. Like it's amazing. I swear I read something about this. It's very foggy, but something about recording certain species of plants by doing this process where they, you know, prevent it from degrading and they turn it into basically like the crystal structure of whatever was there. And, you know, it just becomes that now. Geez, I'm sort of, that's beyond my comprehension at the moment. It's all new to me. But what sort of like technique could be implemented to get a plasma charge like that? I mean, are we talking about chemistry, some sort of like concoction of a liquid with certain, you know, certain ingredients inside? How do we create this sort of plasmatic force? I mean, maybe I'm not understanding. The main way is... From what I've seen that's currently out there on a very large scale at the scale that we're talking about is weather modification. Right. 
essentially when you create static fields, you know, it's such a, they shouldn't call it static. They should call it dynamic, Mm. but we'll just use the terminology that they use. So when you create a static field charge through little droplets of water, each little water droplet is a dipole. It's a magneto. It's a spinning, it's a positive and negative molecule that spins. That creates a charge. All of our generators, that's the way they work. It's just a magnet that's spinning. (laughs) And so when you get a bunch of these around each other, they start to create a field because they create the same charge and they push away from each other. And then you have some of them that attract to each other. So they, this has been in the public domain, like for real, since my birth year, 1976. This is, you know, the Weather Weather Modification Act of 1976, the bicentennial year. They talked about the Department of Agriculture. This, all these different departments could use this technology to terraform. And the easiest way to terraform is through plasma charges. <laughs> it sounds like it's like totally out there, but like in the 40s, it was either the 40s or the early 50s, Bell Laboratories was sued by the state of New York for not preventing a hurricane that hit New York. So in the 40s and 50s, it was well known in the public domain in the United States that you could move weather, you could change weather. It was advertised. And then it all went silent and it all went privatized. (laughs) And then by 1976, they said, okay, the Department of Agriculture, the Department of Defense, you guys can play with this stuff. We'll farm it out to whoever we want. But what you do is you create these massive clouds, these systems, these fields that have put like from our perspective infinite potential and then you create a grounding event wherever you want that ground to be and wherever that ground is all that potential finds its way to that ground and whatever whatever is there guess what (laughs) it's petrified well you could petrify it you could destroy it you could do a lot of different things So what I'm thinking is in the past, like these different mythos was that their scale might have been grander than what we have, Hmm. or the scale that we have just hasn't been fully expressed yet. Well, let's say it it was essentially, you know, Zeus and Thor, you know, the lightning gods from the sky coming down and wreaking havoc. Right. That is because your sky is ruled the air element is rules electricity. So our electrical potential, the higher you go up, the more potential you have. And so this is why the Air Force in today's terms, they want to they rule all of the volume above us. They're the ones that are playing with the electrical fields. Because it's all in the name. You have to just have some alchemical knowledge. They... Air rules electricity. And so the electricity that they're using, when it's directed in a coherent manner, it could be coherent. Now, this is where I don't know my terminology perfectly. I'm learning this from Jorge Mesa. 
you can have constructive interference. You can have constructive, you can have destructive interference. You can have destructive non-interference. And there's a fourth one. All of these different waveforms, how they concress and coalesce, will give you different outcomes. Wow. And I think one of them, I would say it would be harmonic coherence would probably be what would actually cause with a sufficient ground and potential that would actually cause the, whatever is getting hit to actually petrify. Wow. So going back to Roger Spurs experiment, let's say you have a human being in a vat of mud and then you have an iron spike leading into that you know medium of mud maybe that's exactly uh, under those conditions harmonic coherence maybe that's how you get such beautifully you know smooth sculptures of i mean cloth and human facial expressions that really are unrivaled today you'd think people would become more sophisticated over time but clearly you know they were able to achieve you know things even 500 400 years ago in the renaissance that we can't you know do now and i wonder what that term really esoterically means the renaissance maybe it was a as esoteric scholars put it, you know, sort of reaching back into the ancient past and pulling out what we could of what was left of the esoteric knowledge. And, you know, maybe that was why Michelangelo and these guys built these amazing things, right? Absolutely. You would have a lot of fun with Mike Wilkerson. He's still his name down. I got to get in touch with him. Maybe you could I will send you his contact. Thank you. He was giving me examples of all this Italian sculpting artwork where there's a type of post that's used that has never been able to be recreated. And it's a column that at the bottom of the column, there's a perfect circle. And then the column comes up and then comes back. So it's it at the top and the bottom of the column. It's the same exact diameter. But the center of it is like this beautifully, perfectly arced, curved surface. And it's it would look like somebody did it out of epoxy. Nobody, like for the Western mind, they were like, how do you do this? How do you recreate it? And it was very well known in Italian literature that this was wood that they did this process to, and the wood turned to stone. Wow. So it would have been much easier to create, you know, stone with those qual or wood with those qualities and then turn it to stone rather than working the stone into those shapes. And precisely. Wow, that's incredible. So, yeah, I wonder how we could recreate this. I mean, is, is it as simple as putting these things in mud and, and hitting it with a voltage or? Well, you know, I talked with Longo about, he's really big into the bog bodies in right. Florida. Like you've heard of the bog yeah, bodies? Yeah. yeah, down in Florida, for sure. I've heard about it. Yeah, so they found bog bodies that in a bog that was under the ocean. It was like, you know, I forget how many hundreds of feet out in the bay of, you know, in the panhandle there. 
And these things were like so well preserved, like incredibly preserved. And it was because in a bog, there's zero oxygen. The soil has no oxygen in it. It's literally, I think that's one of the defining characteristics of it. There's no oxidative stress. You could slip something in there and it's just going, it's going to be preserved. There's no oxidative stress at all. Right. And, you know, I have no idea. You know, for me, usually in a bog, it's wet. The wetness of something, a lot of people think water is a good conductor of electricity. It is not. Water actually has it has a very high dielectric potential to it. So it doesn't like it, excuse me, it has a low dielectric potential. So you want to add salts to water to allow there to be a current to move through the water easier. That's what's known as an electrolyte. So like people like in your batteries and stuff like that, you pour, you know, distilled water and the battery itself has an electrolyte and that allows the current to move through it. But very pure water, especially in something that's PD or boggy or whatever, the electricity won't want to move through it. So I think that they had other mediums. I think they had mediums like these piezoelectric or excuse me, these these geopolymer mediums that they could send a charge through if they wanted to cast somebody. But it sounds like in talking with Mike, I'm much, much more convinced that they had instantaneous, they had a plasma arcing system, at least for a few hundred years, where they were turning... And this was a mechanized thing. They could tr- turn something that's biological, like wood, they could turn it into stone. They could turn a human into stone. I mean, they have all these animals that are perfectly petrified. Mm-hmm. How is that possible? It would have to be an instantaneous thing. Right. Wow. Now, w- when you say they have all these animals, where are these? In museums and whatnot? In Europe? Yeah. Or? Okay. Yeah, I watched the videos on Stellium 7, and he shows all these pictures right. of different organs that are perfectly petrified, different little animals that are petrified, huh. you know, and then the whole thing with now seeing these crosscuts of all the, what we were told were stone, and it's obvious that it was a cellulose, at some point in its life cycle, it was cellulitic. Hmm. Yeah, this is really opening up a huge can of worms here brother i'm excited to to look into how this sort of thing can be accomplished but so do you think that the it's more likely that they sculpted human figures out of wood to make some of these sculptures do you think people actually volunteered to be turned to stone and to what end? Do you think this was some sort of spiritual transition in a way, or maybe a chance to become immortal somehow? Well, haven't you ever asked yourself, what's the big deal about a bust? You know, like whenever somebody has a bust made. Right. I don't know what it's like in my life, like in, in playing, you know, sports and everything like that. Like whenever you got to the Hall of Fame of whatever, they will make a bust of you. And I'm like, I always thought that was weird as a kid. Yeah. Then you like, then you're like looking at that. You're like, 
why would I want like my face immortalized? You know what I'm saying? I always thought like the whole notion of these statues and everything that were done. I never got it personally why that was such an important thing until actually now thinking at some point in the past, I bet you that's actually you were immortalized. I mean, the abundance of statues in the ancient world, I mean, yeah, maybe those are all beings that were once walking around, like the Sphinx, who knows, maybe the Sphinx was an actual creature, but yeah, yeah. I don't know, I'm, uh, this is just a hypothetical, I'm throwing it out there, but like in the modern day, as a kid growing up in the 80s, and I would see, oh, football hall of fame, oh, baseball hall of fame, and you know, go to the Washington Monument and all these statues. I'm like, what's, why? What's the importance of a statue? Like, why are the, why are people putting so much energy into a statue? My sister gets paid a lot of money to do, do pictures of people. What's that? Portraits? Yeah. She does it in graphite. Okay. And so she can do she could do a graphite portrait of somebody that looks like a black and white still of them. And she gets paid a lot of money to do that. Well, the next step up is to have your bust in 3D. And I'm like, why do people do that? What's the point? Like what what are they trying to achieve? And maybe this is just a remnant of a bygone era of when people, you know, hey. We have this, you know, continuity, this soul transport system. You've accomplished whatever you need to accomplish. Let's leave the call of your body here in geological form and you get to go on and you get to go forth. Who knows? Yeah. But I think a lot, and I'm not saying all statues are this. I'm not, this is just a hypothesis. I'm just trying to wonder how did it ever get to our point in our in our civilization that this was an actual important thing to do? I'm going to listen to the words that they people use. I'm going to immortalize them in stone. Well, and I guess possibly even, you know, given the soul has left the earthly realm, it's an opportunity to come back. Maybe not altogether in the same way that you and I are here now, but, you know, there is the whole idea that these statues have a sort of consciousness or spirits attached to them in certain cases, right? There's tons of legends and lores associated with certain, you know, monuments, whatever they may be, even modern ones that are relatively recently created have maybe spirits that have jumped into them, but... Yeah, I've only really seen statues of people that were important, and I, I always felt like it was, yeah, a way to immortalize their presence so that they could still you know, impact people beyond their, you know, earthly, you know, departure. It's just odd, because I know very spiritual people I know, and they don't like, 
their picture being taken. They don't mm. like their image and likeness being used for anything. Yeah, well, it does seem like a very <laughs> egotistical, narcissistic thing at the very least. I could see that, you know, but yeah, it's fascinating. Now, I want to ask you, because you made a comment earlier about the stone city of Chicago and how strange it is that it would all burn down. You know, usually people mention you know, their explanation for these great fires is, oh, well, they only built with wood back then. But if you're implementing this sort of science, I mean, that explains a lot. But I wonder, you know, when it comes to these fires, what do you think the actual cause or purpose of them was? I, I trust that you're right that most of these buildings were made of stone because I myself live in a relatively old place and most of the old buildings that are still around are made out of stone. You know, there's very few stone, you know, houses that are built out of wood that have survived. And yeah, the rest of the what survived from like the 1600s and 1700s is pretty much stone. I really think it's disaster capitalism in its... I guess you would say it's most amped up way. <laughs> These stone or brick, let's just call it masonry is the best way to say it. Because masonry covers stone, covers concrete, right. covers brick. These masonry cities, let's just use Chicago for an example. Incredible. Like it was a massive city. Thousands of buildings, and apparently a, a cow tipped over a lamp, a kerosene lamp, and the whole place burned down. Well, why do we make our fireplaces out of brick? Don't you think if everything was built out of brick, you know, the fire would have been contained in one little area? You know, it makes even if the roofs were wood wooden shingle, let's say. It wouldn't leave this disaster where everything is destroyed. Well, and you I, have the roofs be gone. You'd have the internal furniture be gone, but the, yeah. the actual, the photos that I've seen of a bunch of these cities, like going down into the South also, like what the photos that they show are is essentially a bunch of rubble. It's almost like I'm looking at a redo of how they showed us at the, you know, nine 11, mm. you know, ground zero, you'd have smoldering something over there. And then you'd have uh, just like a small little rubble pile over here. And you were told, okay, the two largest buildings in the world, the most mass in the world, get this, the most mass Ever in the world is now gone. It's just gone within a couple of weeks. Like it was gone that day, but like for the story's sake, by the time people were on ground zero taking photos and stuff like that, like there was little rubble piles and a little bit of smoldering. Where did the mass of those buildings go? Well, they, they took that out of the playbook that they did before. There's a technology that they have that sky, it's from the sky, where they come over these cities, who knows, maybe they come over them with dirigibles or back then, like in the 1800s, who knows. But there's something that 
when you look at the photos of these decimated cities that were burnt to the ground, they are not burnt. They're exploded. They're decimated. It's like what you're seeing in Maui. But to bring up what you said earlier, I mean, maybe these are some sort of weather modification events where they're able to build up this destructive, incoherent force and it just completely smithereens everything that's masonry because that has a certain, you know, electronic buildup and it just overloads it all. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. There's a charge to it. I'm totally with you. Wow. Because all these buildings, they had rebar in them. They had metal in them, so they're conductive. Right. And as I look at like Paradise in California and I look at the Maui photos and I'm like, okay, the, the my friends that are over in Hawaii that I've been talking to, they're like, okay, look, you got these umbrellas over here, but yet the building right next to it is incinerated. Now, I'm a builder. I build for people professionally. They ask me my opinion all the time on cheese lounges, on all the stuff like exterior patio stuff, awnings, all this stuff. I am telling you, there is nothing on this planet that is made that that could handle the heat, whatever vaporized the building that was next to these four, you know, perfectly... <laughs> blue umbrellas there is no umbrella material in the world that could handle that if it was if that was caused by quote unquote heat so they're pulling out the old playbook it's what they did to chicago it's what they did to san francisco it's what they did to to charleston south carolina it's oh a fire quote unquote, oh, a wildfire, something that was out of control, a wildfire did this. No, this is something coming from the sky. It's something that, I mean, we were showed what it was on 9-11. It essentially dematerializes anything that has metal and masonry. Right. It just dematerializes it. And then you're left with these little rubble piles here and there in a smoldering. And I love Judy Wood, Dr. Judy Wood, because she was like, it's not smoke because it's not coming from a fire. (laughs) And she's right. Like the smoldering of the stuff that was going on, you have things that shouldn't be burning are burning and things that should be burning are not. Right. It's the same thing. And we've seen this before. There's a playbook that's being used. Wow. And they use the same stories because they're not all that inventive. (laughs) But, oh, it's a wildfire. Well, and would they need something like a a drone to act as like this sort of grounding point, you know? Or is it simply that the building itself is that grounding point and they can direct the weather forces to generate that destructive impact in that one location? It's sort of... As you described earlier, when we were talking about creating this plasma, is it along those same lines or do they need some sort of vehicle to to be the, you know, I don't know, delivery process, so to speak? Because I think that's where a lot of people go, come to 
grip can't come to grips with Judy's theory because they're like, oh, there was there a drone in the sky shooting laser beams at the building? And that's immediately what they think of when they think of direct energy weapons. They think, oh, something's shooting at it, but could it be rather that this object or whatever is just directing the energy that's coming from the environment? Okay, there's so much to this. It's all <laughs> of the above. First of all, we only see 3% of the light spectrum. So it could be a light beam that's being used that's non-visible to us because we don't see that much light to begin with. Right. <laughs> and Dr. Wood's thesis, her theory on the whole thing was that they used an alpha wave, which is an extremely low frequency, that created the, let me see if I get this right, the destructive incoherence so the elf wave is just it's it's like the bass tone like whenever you're listening to the edm music so the elf is hitting and that's vibrating everything and then they hit it with a discordant high frequency note and then they hit it with the dematerialization note and so it's the combination it's a it's a, it's a triple access type of weapon so her summation was that this doesn't need to be a local thing. Like you don't need to have, say, a drone or a plane. You can displace this energy non-locally. And this is Tesla proved. This is like the, this goes all the way back to ether physics, where it's like frequency is location. So if they charge a certain location with a discordant frequency, they could power something else up somewhere else and then have it match like a tuning fork to the harmonic of that location and then displace that energy to that location. Wow. Wow. It's amazing. So, it's amazing how... It doesn't need to be visible because right. I don't know. I only saw the 9-11 footage from media. I wasn't there. I didn't see it in person. Mm. So I'm already dealing with, you know, one level of separation, looking at it through an electronic medium. Right. I have had microwave weapons shot at me <laughs> and four of my cohorts, and we didn't see it, but... I'll let you know, we felt the effects <laughs> and that was not a good, that was not, that's something that if that would have continued, there would have been a very destructive and violent occurrence if that would have continued. You know, there's so many frequency ranges that are inaudible and not visual that are used in weaponry now that you wouldn't see it coming. It's not like the old school, like you're seeing a missile shot or anything like that. I think they just do that stuff for fireworks, you know, and I've seen some pictures and videos, but I don't know what to trust when I see something online. Right. I just know that the technology and the patents have been out for a very long time where none of this is audible. It, they can make it as inaudible and as non-visual as they want it. Right. Yeah, this is startling. I think there's a, a huge gap in the average person's mind when it comes to, you know, weaponry and what's possible. I, you know, there's a lot of talk about digital weaponry and hacking and all that, but I think, you know, what we're really 
what you should be focusing on is these energy weapons. But, dude, this has been such a fantastic conversation. I know it's getting late. <laughs> For me, I got to eat something before I before I go to bed, and it's getting late. But I'd love to have you no back on to continue this very soon. And, uh, yeah, tell the folks where they can follow up with you. Obviously, you have multiple venues and ways they can get in touch with you, right? Tell them about it. Yeah. Yeah, so TopherHQ.com. That's Topher, that's me, headquarters.com. That's where I have my podcast, which is the Bio Charisma podcast. And there's the biochar in the Bio Charisma. Had to sneak that in there. And I'm also at Bio Charisma on Instagram. The pod is played on, I believe it's on Spotify. It's not on Apple stuff yet, but I'm also on Telegram, the Bio Charisma podcast, and at just Bio Charisma. So yeah, those are the main ways that you can reach me and I'll be at the, I'll be speaking at the Bear Target Times Festival. I don't know when you're going to post this, Mark, but I believe September 3rd and 4th. Oh, I'll post it um, before then for sure. Yeah. So I'll be speaking there and I'm going to get into the more esoteric levels of biochar or activated carbon and like the whole, last year I did five, I did the five. In the golden ratio this year, I'm going to do the six, which is carbon. Okay. And I'm going to, I'm going to get into that and kind of wax rhapsodic on the carbon and why it's needed and why it's been systematically taken out of our life in so many different ways. Right. But yeah, that's where everybody can find me. Awesome. Awesome. I love it. Wow. This has been a mind blowing episode as usual with all your you know, knowledge and your specialty, I feel really privileged to be able to ask you these questions. So look forward to another conversation here because I definitely will be inviting you back soon. But until next time, folks, follow up with BioCharisma, TopherHQ.com. The links will be in the description. And uh, yeah, play around with it. Make some biochar, throw it in your garden. Is there a way people can learn more about biochar directly from you? I mean, yeah. how to implement yeah, yeah. that, right? Hit me up on Telegram. That I'm actually going to be selling my whole... I'm going to be selling essentially a how-to-do kit. Because I'm dealing with big barrels, it's not something I can like mail to people, but it's easy enough to make. And I'm introducing it to the world for real, real at the festival. And then I'll be selling well educational models about it afterwards. Right on. Well, follow up with that and revitalize the soil, folks. It's on you. I mean, only you can spark forest fires to change the world. And until <laughs> next time, immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. Right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to go support Topher on Instagram and check out his website, topherhq.com. He's got a podcast as well. 
and uh yeah that's all for me folks uh thank you so much for all your support please do sign up on the patreon where i'm gonna be doing a very special bonus episode with some friends from hawaii uh we're gonna be talking about a little bit about what we talked about today uh with the maui fires i have some friends over there that are in hawaii so we're gonna get some reports from on the ground and put that together in an episode and release it for the supporters only. So if you want to get the lowdown on what really happened first, go over to the Patreon, the Substack, the Rockfin, and check that out. And until next time, folks, uh, be sure to leave us a five-star rating and review. Uh, I definitely want to read some more ratings on the show, and it's a Friday episode, so why not? Let's read a couple of our latest reviews and i also want to give a shout out to our sponsor the number one hit kit the number one way to get lit that's right the hit kit this device is a real lifesaver if you love smoking weed blunts joints whatever you're rolling up spliffs whatever it is you can tuck them away safe and sound in your hit kit right next to your lighter and you'll never lose your lighter again. Be sure to use the promo code CRAZY at checkout to save 15% off and let Garrett know that you heard about it on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. That's www.hitkit.us or the Hit Kit on Instagram. So check that out and yeah, let's read some reviews. Mark, you have such a... Oh, hold on. Let's read the title first. Original and Eclectic. Five stars. Mark, you have such a pleasant voice that betrays your giant physical stature. I don't know, but the image slash thumbnail for the podcast doesn't do the show justice in my humble opinion. No offense, it's very nice and psychedelic, but I think you need some more mellow, something more mellow and subtle. Anyway, that's besides the point. From George in Japan. Wow. Thank you, George. And I agree. Hey, if you know any Japanese artists that you like, maybe they could do something for us. I don't want to use the, uh, <laughs> I don't want to use the AI art for something like that. So I'm not going to do that, but we'll see. I do appreciate the comment and the note. So yeah, I'll consider it. I just got to find the right artist. Next review, we got. Hold on. Says, great show. Five stars. He's got great guests and topics, and the combos are pretty long, but the host thing with his family thinking his cr- he's crazy is, like, kind of teenagerly, but he's, like, 35. <laughs> like, of course they do, bro. Just let it go. It feels like complaining. New name, new intro, etc. would elevate this podcast greatly. Just dot 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 from the big boss man fellow well uh that's funny that's a neat comment i don't ask every guest that question does your family think you're crazy because yeah it is a little immature and i frankly don't care whether or not they think i'm crazy i think it's a joke i think it's relatable and i'm never gonna change it so i do have other shows by different titles so there you go But yeah, My Family Thinks I'm Crazy is relatable and people love it. So thank you for the five-star rating and review. But I will politely uh, disagree 
I do think we may get a new intro song eventually because, yeah, 300 episodes of the same intro song is more than enough. So we're definitely going to get a new intro song. I'm just looking for the right rapper or musician to pull that off. So then we've got uh, a much better review. No offense, Big Boss Man, but you're a little picky for a show that comes out for free for the most part. Um, So we got Mr., just says Mr. And then it says five stars. Unless MR means something. And this is excellent. And that's from someone named I Smoke Weed from the Czech Republic. Shout out to all our listeners in the Czech Republic. I had no idea we had listeners in the Czech Republic. Big Boss Man Fellow is from the US. That's where most of our listeners are, but We've got a review from someone from Japan, a review from someone from the Czech Republic. This is awesome. This is a global podcast, and it's clearly relatable, big boss, man. I don't have a boss. We'll be someone else's boss. All right, so next review. Listen, Linda, listen. Five stars. I enjoy every episode due to the engaging way that Mark conducts his interviews, which puts his podcast at the top of my list. I've gained an unreal amount of knowledge from this podcast. This place is the real deal for finding out more of this reality. And yes, everyone in my family thinks I'm crazy. LOL. See, that's relatable. That's from the guru of gurus. He is also in the U.S. Next review. Uh, Great information. Five stars. Fantastic and enlightening. From Ted R. Shout out to you, Ted. He's also from the U.S. And um, and then, yeah, what else? Let's see. Very underrated show and voices. Five stars. What can I say? I came to be entertained by a bunch of conspiracy theorists and found a lot of interesting and others entertaining voices. Thanks to this show. Mark, you are a much-needed release in the current information age, and I appreciate you for that and cheer you on. Got this and can't wait to see your shows on HBO soon. Does HBO do podcasts? I didn't know I was going to... I was in the running for a TV show, but hey. Somebody, if you're an agent listening, hit me up. Maybe I'll be on HBO. Are they looking for a six foot eight guy with a beard and shoulder length hair? All right. Insightful. Five stars. I love all the great topics. Your interview with Yoshi was so interesting. I almost didn't play it because of the topics listed, but I'm glad I played it. I may have to go back and listen again. Wow. See, that episode was a cult classic. A lot of people who listened to it said, that's my favorite episode so far, which didn't surprise me because Yoshi's this incredibly entertaining guy. He's on one of the most popular podcasts, uh, out there regularly that's uh, your mom's house with tom segura and christina p so yeah shout out to yoshi for being so kind to join us on this show when yeah he's been on a bunch of other podcasts i definitely recommend you go and listen to uh him there because those interviews are in person and they're also a little bit longer so anyways uh best episode five stars i really enjoy your podcast but your last episode on 8223 is one of my favorites great podcast keep them coming all right let's see what episode was that is it 
if that's the Yoshi episode, then that would be very interesting. Two people in a row commenting saying they love that episode. Let's see. 8-2, when was that? <clears throat> oh, it was the Skylar Mathis and Ike Baker episode. That was actually a show I was invited on as a guest. So, yeah. Shout out to... Shout out to Sky Mathis and Ike. Sky's the Philosophical Minds podcast. Let's see. So this next review is four stars, so I'm not going to read it, but shout out to you, DJ. You get an honorable mention. If you change your star rating, I will read your review. Uh, Great podcast, so easy to listen to. Um, Oh, no, I already read that one. Okay, cool. So I just repeated myself. Anyways, thank you so much for the reviews. Thank you for all the support. If you want to support us on... Patreon, Substack, or Rockfin. The links are in the episode description wherever you're listening to this show. And you can also find ways to denote, donate, <laughs> don't denote a donation. Uh, you can donate to the show uh, with a one-time donation at Venmo, PayPal, Cash App. Just hit me up at Mystic Mark um, on PayPal or Venmo. If you need the last four digits of my phone number, it's 2414. So... Yeah, there you go. And then uh, Cash App is Mark Steves Jr. So that's a lot of personal information. But anyways, I trust all of you. Thank you so much for listening to the show. And yeah, please do support the show. Once we get to 250 patrons, I will commit to doing in-person interviews with out-of-the-box people who may not sit down at a computer to do interviews. We'll see how that goes. You know, maybe people like it, maybe people don't, but I want to get the patron supportership up there to 250. I think that'll really change the game for the podcast and give me much more time to dedicate to creating really great content for all of you out there who enjoy what I do. Support us on Patreon. Uh, I do live very close to two actually three major cities four if you count philadelphia is not that far so that gives me access to tons of interesting people that i can do in-person interviews with just need a little more dough to travel around so if people can support us on patreon rockfin and substack we will achieve that goal and you will all make my dreams come true so that i'm not a 35 year old complaining even though uh, you were wrong sir I'm still in my 20s, so fuck you. I'm not 35, and I'm not going to change the name of the podcast, but I do appreciate the five stars, so I take the fuck you back, big boss man. You rule. You gave us five stars, so you earned it. You earned it. But anyways, yeah, I'm not 35. Thanks for asking. And that's about it for today's episode. A little too stoned. Uh, I slurred my words a little bit. Uh, I noticed that, but who cares? Who cares? You're enjoying the podcast, and this is the end of the podcast. So go and listen to maybe the first interview I did with Topher Gardner. Uh, That was a great one if you haven't already tuned into that. And support him on Instagram at BioCharisma. And check out more information at TopherHQ.com or go to MyFamilyThinksI'mCrazy.com to support us. That's all. Peace. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great moment wherever you are in the now.
MFTIC. Broadcasting the moon matrix from the lunar surface. They want you confused, like you never knew your purpose. Hopping through the portals, dismantling the machine. My family thinks I'm crazy, I can't believe what I've seen. Memories of a war, the Pleiadians and Anunnaki stuck within the genes of a copy of a human body. DNA fractal, the universe within me. Epiphanies of science is hoarded by the Illuminati. Puppet masters know the power of the mantra. Repeating mad lies till it has an effect on ya. Subliminal messages, hijacking perception, tricking the population with holographic projections. We see through it. The system is unraveling. I'm astral traveling through the library of the Vatican on a sacred journey. I embark with the squad, forever spitting truth like Mark on the pod. Gotta know the facts, never hold back. Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap. I dissect the fabric of reality, looking for the answers. Searching through the galaxy, you might be feeling stressed out. Depression, anxiety, it's no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are, we the ones who gonna expose the whole facade I awoke in a deep underground military base, zero recollection of how I got to this place Alien corpses floating in glass cylinders, must have been extracted when they crashed into us Animal hybrids contained in the cages a lion with the eagle head, monkeys with reptilian faces Losing my mind and I'm feeling desperate I look around the room and I see no sign of an exit All of a sudden the wall flickers away Revealing a hangar full of spacecraft, my getaway I run to the nearest one See a guard knock him out, rob him for his plasma gun Hop in the ship, take the controls They highly intuitive, I figure it out easily Lift off, accelerate through a tunnel until I see the light Fly into the sky, get flanked by six F-35 facts, never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers Searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety It's no measure of health To be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade <laughs>